Please rise as you are able for the reading of today's scripture from John chapter 17, verses 20 through 26. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. May they also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them, so that they may be one, as we are one. I in them, and you in me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known so that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you so much, Fran, for reading our lesson this morning. It's so good to be in worship with you. Uh, and to be back in the pulpit after last week, uh, although I do miss my sneakers that I wore in the chancel last week, and I think that uh, has value for the future for all preachers to wear sneakers in the chancel. Uh, We're glad you're here, especially a word of thanks to Mark Edwards for pinch-hitting for us today, to our orchestra, and also to Richard Gray, who is with us today as our guest organist, uh, who is at St. George Episcopal and soon to be the organist in Minneapolis at a church there. And Richard, we're grateful for your presence with us today. Uh, if you have been with us since the 1st of May, you know that we've been involved in a series called Heartwarming that is a reference to Wesley's conversion experience on Aldersgate Street on May the 24th, 1738. And we've talked about the whole series, how up until that point in this minister's life, in Wesley's life, faith had been more of an intellectual ascent. But at Aldersgate, something happened in Wesley's heart that changed his life. Jesus became personal in his life. And we know that when faith becomes personal, your witness goes global. And so for the last seven weeks, we've been thinking together on this subject of our Wesleyan lineage of the Christian faith according to the Wesleyan heritage of which many of us are a part. And I have to tell you, now that we're near the end of this series, that I debated the value of even having such a series because of our context that we live in. We live in what's called a post-denominational context in which we don't really talk much about our traditions in the church. We tend to emphasize more the common denominators of our wider fellowship in the world, and well we should. After all, we are a melting pot, even here at Bumsey, we are a melting pot of different traditions and backgrounds. In fact, let's survey the group for a minute. How many of you came to us from a Catholic tradition? You were raised in a Catholic tradition. Please raise a hand. Several of you. How many of you came from a Lutheran tradition? 
several. How many of you came from a Presbyterian? Many more of you. How many of you came from Baptist background? More than any of the others. Nazarenes? We have some Nazarenes in the group. Uh, are there any Methodists here? Yeah, so even there's a few Methodists among us, and I won't ask those of you who were former pagans and atheists, but there are, there are all shapes and sizes in the house. And so I debated whether or not this would be a good idea, and yet it's important, isn't it, for us to understand our great-grandparents, our forefathers and foremothers in our own tradition. It is important to understand our spiritual DNA in our traditions. I need to let you know, if you don't know, that personally I'm sort of a methobacterian. I grew up Methodist, and at the age of 19, in the midst of a Billy Graham school of evangelism, I acknowledged a call to ministry and then worked for the Presbyterians for four summers, the first two years for PCUSA and then PCA. And so I realized that we're moving in this post-denominational age where you don't care as much about what the sign says out front. It's not the label on the box. It's the contents of the heart. And yet these distinctives still matter, but never at the expense or neglect of the global fellowship of which we are a part. And we are called a connectional system in the United Methodist Church. It is a global connection. I don't know about you, but I've decided I don't simply want to be an American church. I want to be the church in America. We're a part of a global movement, and so it matters. It's part of our DNA. There is a word for what I'm talking about. It's called, do you know this word, ecumenism. Ecumenism, it is a part of our DNA the Greek word is oikomania, which literally means open to or participating in the whole world. The idea is scriptural. Jesus said, go into all the what? World. He never said, for God so loved the church, although he does. He said, for God so loved the world. Ecumenism refers to efforts by Christians of different traditions to develop closer relationships and better understandings with one another. For what purpose? For the unity and the witness of the church. By the way, I don't know if you were paying attention, but when Fran was reading that passage a moment ago from John's farewell section… That's the prayer of Jesus on the night before he died, not just for his disciples who were seated at that table, but for you and for me, for future disciples. He was praying that we might become one so that the world might come to know the love of Christ in us. So contrary to popular thought and contrary to three-dog night, one is not the loneliest number. It is the loveliest number. It is a beautiful thing to live in unity, in oneness. Now, it's intriguing to me that when you study the life of Wesley, you find that he himself is a blend of different traditions, mix of different faith traditions. In fact, his grandparents were Puritan 
In other words, they were English Protestant reformers who were trying to purify the Church of England from its Catholic practices. So there is a puritanical influence on Mr. Wesley. In his conversion at Aldersgate, we know that he was shaped at that moment by Moravian Lutheran piety. And we also know that while he was a student at Oxford, he studied the early church fathers of the first five centuries in the Eastern Orthodox tradition and became very appreciative of Roman Catholic mysticism. So you might say he was either very ecumenical or very confused. I think he was very ecumenical. And so in a culture like Wesley's, 18th century England, where the majority of people branded themselves in one camp or another and competed to prove that their church was right, Mr. Wesley was different. He built bridges instead of walls. He found connecting points rather than lines of division. Our spiritual founder was for the world, as was the Lord that he preached. Mr. Wesley never actually intended to start a new denomination any more than Martin Luther did. He was trying to renew and reform an old denomination, the Anglican Church. By the way, the theological principles of the Anglican Church are still in the Methodist discipline. So what this means is that Methodism at its heart is not a new denomination, it's a renewal movement. And when the church ceases to be about spiritual renewal, it's dead. This was Wesley's largest concern in later years. In fact, did you know that in his little book called Thoughts on Methodism, at the age of 83, he shares his concern. Listen to this. I am not afraid that the people called Methodists should ever cease to exist, either in Europe or in America, but I am afraid lest they should only exist as a dead sect, having the form of religion without the power and this undoubtedly will be the case unless they hold fast to the doctrine, spirit, and discipline with which they first set out. Ecumenism is a part of our DNA. That's the good news. But here's the troubling news. So is sectarianism. So is tribalism. So is discord a part of our DNA. In fact, it started early in the gospel. Luke 22, verse 24, you remember, a dispute arose among the disciples as to which one of them was the greatest. So even while Jesus was still with them, there's infighting over rank and position and status. It's interesting, you've noticed that sometimes the church has these church fights. We'll fight over almost anything, and some things are worth fighting for. Believe me, you know this, slavery and race, racial discrimination, there are some things worth fighting for. For many years, we fought over gender, women in ministry. We're now struggling with things like inclusion and bioethics, and more recently, you'll recall, we struggled with the worship wars. You remember that? I, I, I loved my church in Lawrenceville, but I remember in Lawrenceville, we had a little rip it over contemporary music. 
And then the war to end all wars, the screen <laughs> of all things. I, I remember a point in Lawrenceville, I thought we were going to have First Methodist Church on one side with screen, First Methodist Church on the other side without screen. It became a bit of a battle. Even at BUMC, even at this church, we had some struggles with the screen. In fact, in my first few weeks here, Mark, I could remember that I was using the PowerPoint a good bit, and I remember someone coming out in the line after the benediction and just chewing me up over the screen. And I responded graciously, you'll be glad to know. I said, well, first of all, you need to know I didn't put the screen up there. <laughs> but now that it's up there, I've discovered, though many of us are auditory learners, that there are a lot of people who are visual learners, and I want to use every method known to humanity to share the gospel. And so we're going to leave the screen up, and if you'd move on through, there's some others who are waiting to chew me out too. <laughs> and so the person went by, and this is what happened next. I'm telling you the truth. that This sweet little old lady who was up in her 80s, next in line, she comes up to me, she looks both ways to make sure that nobody's watching or listening. And then she says, almost in a whisper, I like the screen. <laughs> and she disappeared. <laughs> Church fights. When we were in Cartersville in Bartow County in, in North Georgia, and we lived off what used to be called Moonshine Run, Highway 411, the week before I started, the lay leader and the treasurer had a fight in the parking lot. It came to blows. The treasurer smacked the lay leader. And I remember when I met the lay leader, I realized why the treasurer might have smacked him. <laughs> I had thoughts myself. But this is a part of our heritage, isn't it? Did you know that in the Middle Ages, Richard, you'd know this, in the Middle Ages, when they decided to bring the organ into the church, you would have thought that the church was abandoning the virgin birth. You can't have an organ in a church, and now you can't get one out of the church. <laughs> Mr. Wesley got nailed by the Church of England because he didn't use the pulpit, because of open-air preaching among the common people. And worst of all were, the common people were coming to Jesus, and the church was threatened <laughs> by the fact that people were coming to Christ in the field instead of the sanctuary, something they should have been celebrating. Charles Wesley, you remember, who wrote 6,500 hymns, got called on the carpet for using pub tunes for his hymns. That's why whenever you sing, oh, for a thousand tongues to… it's a beer drinking song. <laughs> but he was willing to use any method known to humanity, even if it's a pub song, to communicate the gospel. It is so easy, isn't it, to get sideways in secondary matters. And so while ecumenism is a part of our lineage, I'm sorry to say that discord is also. And haven't you discovered, Lord have mercy, it is so hard to be ecumenical. It is so hard to be connectional. And listen, Wesley never said, you'll be glad to know, Wesley never said that you have to give up all your opinions. But he did say, church, 
we must learn to differentiate our opinions from the grand doctrines of the faith. Because when your opinion becomes dogma, the church is in trouble. When my opinion becomes doctrine, the church is in trouble. In a little treatise called The Character of a Methodist, dated 1742, Wesley said this. Listen. The distinguishing marks of a Methodist are not his opinions of any sort, nor his assenting to this or that scheme of religion, the embracing of any particular set of notions, his espousing the judgment of one man or another. They are all quite wide of the point. Whoever imagines that a Methodist is a man of such and such an opinion is grossly ignorant of the whole affair. He mistakes the truth completely. We believe, said Wesley, indeed, that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God. And herein we are distinguished from Jews, Turks, and infidels. We believe the written Word of God is all that is sufficient for Christian faith and practice. And herein we are distinguished from those of the Roman church. We believe Christ to be the eternal, supreme God, and herein we are distinguished from the Arians and the Socinians, who were those who denied the Trinity and the divinity of Jesus. But listen to this, Wesley said, but as to all opinions which do not strike at the root of Christianity, we think and let think. So that whatsoever these opinions are, whether right or wrong, they are no distinguishing marks of a, mess, of a Methodist. Indeed, in essentials there is unity, in non-essentials liberty, and in all things charity. Mr. Wesley had a phrase for this kind of ecumenism. Maybe you've heard it. It was called the Catholic spirit the word Catholic has nothing to do with Roman Catholicism. It means universal. It's like our creed, the Apostles' Creed, when we say we believe in the holy Catholic church. That's not Roman Catholicism. It means universal. It's indicative that God's love is universal and it embraces all humanity. I said all humanity. In their sermons and hymns, the Wesley brothers consistently pointed to the love of God and love of neighbor, or what Jesus called the greatest commandment that Allison mentioned in her prayer, that is the foundation of Christian faith. And when that foundation is present, a life of reconciliation and holiness can be built. This is the Catholic spirit. Let me tell you what it's not. The Catholic spirit is not indifference to the doctrines and practices of scriptural Christianity. The Catholic spirit is not a squeamishness about theological precision, nor is it about theological wishy-washiness. Rather, the Catholic spirit is an open-minded and charitable attitude of Christ-like love with which we regard others with whom we might have a difference of opinion. An example of this can be seen in the relationship with John Wesley and George Whitfield. 
You remember Whitfield, the great preacher. You remember that Whitfield was actually an original member of the Holy Club at Oxford University when the Wesley boys were students. The story is told that Charles Wesley loaned George Whitfield a book called The Life of God in the Soul of Man, which completely changed Whitfield's life. It led to his conversion. In later years, however, the Wesleys were quite strained with Whitfield. Whitfield became something of a Calvinist, and he and Wesley divided over the issue of predestination and free will. In fact, they so vehemently disagreed with each other that they almost parted as friends. And yet, just before Whitfield died, he left specific instructions that Mr. Wesley was to do his funeral. So shocked was one of Whitfield's colleagues that he questioned Whitfield and said, are you sure that you want Mr. Wesley to do your funeral? And Whitfield said, he's the man. You can read that eulogy online. It is a beautiful thing. And so say the historians, that funeral did more for ecumenism than a hundred holy conferences. Because in spite of their divide, both of them possessed a Catholic spirit. I saw it this week at a funeral for Rebecca Dillingham, age 91, the matriarch of her family, a woman with a Catholic spirit. Her grandson, Griff Lucas, came over to this lectern on Monday afternoon, and he talked about his troubled youth. He talked about how misunderstood he felt as a teenager. He said, I was living a life of chronic rebellion. And in his remarks at her funeral, he apologized to his family and friends who were here for the trouble he had caused. But he said, it was my grandmother's love that made the difference. She never sided against me. She loved me in spite of myself. Griff Lucas became the valedictorian of his high school class. He went to Vanderbilt University, got his undergrad degree and then his law degree. He's married now. His family was at the funeral. And if you listen closely, you will hear and see in him a kindred heart, a Catholic spirit, compliments of his grandmother's love. Let me share one other word with you, and I'm through. I have a friend in Atlanta, Georgia, named Rodrigo Cruz. He is a wonderful pastor and a dear friend. I was his presenter when he came before the Board of Ordained Ministry in North Georgia. He's a native of Mexico. He came to the States years ago. He met an American woman, a white woman, Kelly Ann from California. They fell in love. They married. They have four children. One was born in Mexico, two in Georgia, and one who was actually adopted from China. They are age 12, 9, 8, and 3. Makes you weary just thinking about it. <laughs> he said, I was having a, a, a breakfast uh, with a colleague at Waffle House the day after the royal wedding. 
And I couldn't help but overhear at the table behind us a conversation in the booth. They were talking about biracial marriage, and one said to the other, you know, nothing good can come out of biracial marriage. Now, I have to tell you that Rodrigo is one of the gentlest, most loving men I've ever known. He said, I stood up, I wiped the syrup from my mouth, and I went over to the booth. I had my cell phone. I said, ma'am, I couldn't help but hear what you said about biracial marriage. I'm Hispanic. My name is Rodrigo, and my wife, Kellyanne, is white. And he took out his cell phone, and he said, I'd like to show you four good things that can come out of a biracial marriage. And he showed her the picture of his babies, his children. They didn't say anything. Rodrigo said, I was a little concerned that maybe I had embarrassed them. And so as I was leaving, I went up to the cashier and I I took care of their bill. I paid for their meal. And I left. I was getting into my car when she came running over to me threw her arms around my neck and said, thank you. I'm sorry. And off she went. It is amazing the things that come out of a Catholic spirit. It's mind-changing. It's heartwarming. It's life-altering. I don't know about you, but I've gotten to the point after 36 years in ministry, I don't really care anymore if people outthink us or outdo us or outlive us. But Lord, have mercy. I don't want anybody to outlove us because that's the mark of a Methodist. More importantly, that's the mark of a disciple. It's who you are. It's what we do. It's our reason for being. It's our lineage. Love divine, all loves excelling. Joy of heaven to earth come down. Fix in us thy humble dwelling, all thy faithful mercies crowned. Jesus, thou art all compassion, pure, unbounded love thou art. Visit us with thy salvation. Enter every troubling heart. It's who you are. In Jesus' name, amen.